0: You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Yeah, thank you so much, Gail, for leading us in those prayers. And as the prayers indicated, and as Gail indicated, today is a special day. For us as Christians, around the world and throughout church history, uh, Palm Sunday, and <laughs> if you're unfamiliar with it, it's probably a little weird. Like, why palms? Right? Why is that important? Why Palm Sunday? Uh, well, it's actually remembering the day that Jesus arrived into the city of Jerusalem, the culmination of his ministry, and he was coronated as the King that was long proclaimed to come from God to bring redemption and restoration to all things. It was this celebratory day, and so many people. Well, laid out palm branches. It was a sign at the feet of Jesus that this was the coronation of a king, of a new priest that had come to heal all things. And so we, as Christians, think of Palm Sunday as a celebratory day often, but it wasn't just a celebratory day. It's something that we often forget as Christians. See, Jesus's arrival did prompt celebration in certain people, but it also prompted rejection in other people. Less than a week after his arrival in Jerusalem. He was murdered for his claims to be the Messiah. So, this is actually a day of split responses. It's a day of some people with humble hearts saying, I am ready and willing to receive Jesus into my life. I'm ready and willing to see Jesus form every part of my life. And other people who say, Thanks, but no thanks. I'm good. I like how I'm doing right now. I don't really need Jesus in my life. And so, it's not just about happy songs. Today should prompt us to reflect on what sort of people we're gonna be. Are we gonna be the sort of people with humble hearts receiving Jesus' grace and forgiveness and embodying that to the world? Or are we gonna be people with stubborn hearts? People who refuse to welcome Jesus into our lives and who continue to just do things on our terms. Our next text in this series, we're calling woe, is gonna ask this question for us: Do we have stubborn hearts? Or do we have humble hearts? Turn in a Bible, if you have one, with me to the Gospel of Luke. This is the third book in your New Testament. If you're flipping there, uh, we're going to be reading from chapter 10, which is the big number 10 when you're flipping through. And then starting in verse 13, the little number 13. Uh, Luke 10, verse 13. We're also going to have the words up on the screen if you'd like to follow along there. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But at the judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me. Whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I teach a class at uh, Grand Canyon University. There's some lopes out here sitting around, I'm sure. People connected. Yeah, yep, we got some, some repping of the lopes. Uh, and in that class, we often read the scriptures together. And I assign my students to read certain things. And I notice students often don't want to read texts that have cities or towns in them because they're hard to pronounce. <laughs> so they come across them and they're like, ah, this isn't it. I don't want to be stuck on this thing. I'm not going to read it. And it's kind of a funny dynamic, but we have to remember that when we open these texts, the the towns and the cities have major significance, major significance in how we understand them. So whenever we come across things like this, Chorusin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, all these different places, helping uh, to understand those will ultimately lead us uh, to better understand what Jesus is getting at here. In this group of, of verses, we find Jesus comparing six different cities, two different sets of three started in verse 12, which is a verse before we, where we started reading. He mentions Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. And then he mentions Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. And I wanted to give you a map, actually, of where we are. Uh, these were actual towns. Jesus actually walked around. Uh, we are in the Middle East, right in the thick of our globe. And Israel and Palestine, you'll see these little words right in, in the center of that frame. So then uh, go ahead, Lauren, and hit the next one, the next uh, map over. So now we're zoomed in on Israel, and you can see... These uh, towns listed all over this map. You've got Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin, all grouped together near the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus spent a lot of time in his ministry. And then you've got Tyre and Sidon north of here. They were outside of Galilee. Uh, These three towns right near uh, the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, they were all uh, Jewish towns, first century Jewish towns, religious towns. Capernaum was actually the center of Jesus' ministry. He performed more miracles in the city of Capernaum in the scriptures than anywhere else. In Bethsaida, he called three of his disciples, Philip, Andrew, and Peter, were all called from Bethsaida. And Chorazin is actually never mentioned again in this book. It's only mentioned in this text, which means, he says he performed deeds of power there, it means that we actually don't have record of everything that Jesus did. That's a helpful reminder to us, that Jesus did some things that aren't located in this book. Uh, The Gospel of John reminds us of this. Uh, The author says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written here. But these are written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Remember that when we open this library of texts, we're not getting comprehensive answers for everything. We are getting a reliable witness to the person of Jesus, So that we could embody Jesus' life to the world. That's why these texts exist in the way that they do. Whenever we read from this, we read in order to become people who can trust and receive Jesus. The reading of the scriptures is a means to an end, to be transformed people. And in each of these Jewish towns, Jesus says he performed deeds of power. And the word in Greek there implies a level of authority that Jesus has. He's not saying, I'm coming around and teaching you certain things so that you have some nice advice. He's saying, I performed deeds of power that indicate I have authority here, that I am king, and that this redemptive and restorative plan is coming to all things. His actions indicated that true life and meaning is found in him. He is the intervention of God into world history, which means everything changes fundamentally with his arrival. That's what deeds of power is indicating to us. So we've got these three Jewish towns that all witnessed these deeds of power over and over, and they're contrasted with three other towns, Gentile towns, non-Jewish towns. We hear Tyre and Sidon in the verses we read, and then Sodom happens just a verse before where we started. And all of those towns were non-Jewish towns, Gentile towns, and they were condemned throughout the scriptures for their overwhelming wickedness. Think of the ugliest things you can think of, sexual abuse, uh, thieving, and violence, Anything that, that comes to mind when you think of moral corruption, these cities were defined by it. The prophets in the Old Testament speak against Tyre and Sidon for all of their violence. Think really, really ugly stuff in these places. And so if we're imagining a spectrum, Jesus is comparing these two towns. Imagine a religious and moral spectrum. Uh, the religious towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they were on the more ethical and religious side of that spectrum. And Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom were on the other end of the spectrum. But Jesus says that the towns on the more religious end of the spectrum are actually less receptive to the kingdom. That is striking, you guys. You catch what he's doing? I'll say it again. For those in the back, inhabiting religious spaces does not necessarily mean you are more receptive to the kingdom of God when it arrives. That is a striking thing and runs counter to many of our instincts in the world. This is saying something crucial about the message of Jesus. See, when we think of connecting to God, we often think that we do that because we're nice and moral and religious. We do the nice, moral, and religious things, and that connects us to God. But Jesus' message is a little bit different than that. He didn't come to justify those that are in a particular religious or moral system. He came to proclaim a truth about what God is doing, independent of your religious or moral system. That God's forgiveness and peace and grace and justice had arrived and that those things were available to everyone, no matter your background. He was opening this up, not closing it down towards one particular faith. Now, that doesn't mean that religion is bad. Jesus was a religious person. But religion is always a means to an end. That is, for us to experience and know the kingdom and embody that kingdom to the world. Jesus came with a proclamation about what's true. And that means that the source of the problem shifts for us. It's not about the amount of sin or even the frequency of sin in our lives. It's not about where we fall on the spectrum. It's about the stubbornness of our hearts and whether we're willing to acknowledge our sin and turn to Jesus or not. That's a different thing altogether. Jesus takes care of the sin, friends. We're going to talk about that later this week on Good Friday. That's taken care of. The question is, are we, in the deepest parts of ourselves, willing to receive Jesus' forgiveness, to turn to him, repent. The story of Christianity is not a story about religious insiders and outsiders. It's a story about humble hearts and stubborn hearts. And so drawing near to God means believing that what Jesus has done is true. Trusting in Jesus and allowing him to shape every part of what I do. That's why he mentions here that these towns have failed to embody or receive the kingdom in their midst. They've been witness to ultimate truth, and they've said thanks, but no thanks. We're good. We've got things squared away. We've got our businesses running. We've got our religious infrastructure built. We're good. We don't need to really change all that much. We don't need to turn all that much. And Jesus says they've missed him because they haven't repented. And repentance is kind of one of those fancy religious words that can be a little intimidating to us when we first hear it. But it's actually pretty simple. Repentance just means turning a 180. It means to turn around. It's an acknowledgement that I, in my life, have been going one direction towards death and destruction, and the things that I'm doing are only going to continue to bring death and destruction in the world. And when I acknowledge that, and when I acknowledge I can't change that, something starts to happen in me, and I shift. I realize that Jesus has forgiveness for me for the ways that I've brought death and destruction, and he has new life for me to live on the other side of it. Repentance is a dying to a certain way of living, and a living To a new way of living. It's dying to death and living to life. It's an inner change of our hearts that results in an outer change of action. And that means that the only people, according to the kingdom of heaven, the only people who don't receive true life are the ones who think they don't need it. The only people who don't receive the kingdom are the ones who say, I'm good, I don't need to repent. It's not about the amount of sin. It's about the stubbornness of my heart. Am I willing to acknowledge my brokenness, my need for Jesus? And oftentimes, throughout history, the most stubborn people can be the most religious people. That's what Jesus is bringing up here. Because we start to buy into our religion. We start to buy into our own hype. That we have done all the right things and that we're actually pretty good and that those people outside this room, well, they don't really have it figured out. Thank God I'm in here and not out there. We overlook the fact that the kingdom is here for every person and that nothing separates them from that kingdom other than their stubbornness. And that should strike us as church-going people because we're doing religious things right now. It should make us ask a serious question of ourselves. Are our hearts stubborn or are they humble? Are we willing to receive the death and resurrection of Jesus and allow that to shape everything we do are we saying thanks, but no thanks? I'm good. I've got my things squared away. Sure, I'll, I'll do your church thing every once in a while, but by and large, I'm good where I'm at. That's the question central to this whole text here. Those who miss the kingdom are the ones who have stubborn hearts. And I think sometimes to help us answer the question of whether our hearts are stubborn or not, it's helpful to look into these texts. There were all sorts of responses that Jesus received to his proclamation of the kingdom, and we can learn from those responses. Learn what stubbornness looked like and learn what humility looked like. So first, let's look at the stubborn heart in responses to Jesus throughout the scriptures. There are three main reasons that people were stubborn to Jesus in in response to Jesus. There are actually three E words, so I've made it easy on you to remember. The three main reasons were that people had expectations, exaltations, and exemptions. We just had our extravaganza, so I'm just keeping the thing going. (laughs) Expectation, yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. Let's uh, let's unpack each of these, because those are big E words. First, expectations. That was one reason why people had stubborn hearts in Jesus' day. The religious people of that time believed that God would function a certain way when he arrived. That whenever God showed up in the world, he would come to justify the religious people and condemn the irreligious people. And so the most important thing in that day was to maintain as best as possible religious fidelity, as best as possible do the right religious or moral thing. That was what they expected. And that meant that they also expected God to come and condemn all of those other people. They were going to uplift, God was going to uplift the religious folks and condemn the others. But when Jesus shows up, he actually goes to the ones that the religious folks thought would be condemned. He shows up to those who were most corrupt the Gospel of Luke tells us about these characters. He calls them sinners and tax collectors over and over. These were the people who were most maligned in that culture. And Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven has come near to them because they're aware of their brokenness. They're aware of their need for forgiveness, for redemption. And the religious people don't like that because it's breaking their expectation of who God is. Friends, as religious people, we often set expectations for who God is and what God's going to do. Expectations for who God's going to justify and who God's going to condemn. And if we're not careful, we can start to create a God more in our image than in the image of Jesus. We often use God as a way to elevate ourselves over others, thinking that he'll come to justify us and condemn those others. So those liberals out there, they're going to get condemned. Or those conservatives out there. (laughs) those vaxxers or those anti-vaxxers, those people who cut me off in traffic, those people coming into our country who are just reaping the benefits and not actually working, all of those people that we tend to condemn, we think that God will show up and justify us. It's a problem. Our expectations of God can sometimes be indications that our hearts are stubborn. Jesus was killed because he proclaimed that God didn't work like everyone thought he did. And so if Jesus' actions or words in these texts don't meet our expectations of who God is or what God's doing, it's very possible we have a stubborn heart. So what expectations might be preventing you right now? What expectations might be preventing you from receiving God's love in your life and extending that love to others? That's the first sign of a stubborn heart, expectations. The second sign of a stubborn heart is exaltations, that is, lifting up of ourselves. We learn that all over Jesus' ministry, there were people who truly believed that they were pretty good, that by and large, they did the right religious things. And when they didn't, they made up for those right religious things in the right ways. And so they developed a selfishness, a pride, a sense that, well, by and large, I'm doing the right things, and when God shows up, he'll give me the gold star that I've earned. It's really about me. God's just the ledger card measure. He'll come and give me the check mark, and I'm good to go. It creates an inability to repent, an inability to recognize my need for forgiveness. The inability to repent is always the sign of a stubborn heart. Jesus tells a story about this in his ministry. He talks about a Pharisee and a tax collector who both approach the temple to pray. A Pharisee in that time was a very religious person who did all of the right religious things in the right ways. And a tax collector was an evil, corrupt person. They were uh, skimming money off the top for themselves and taking advantage of people. They were representative of the Roman Empire. It was an ugly position to hold culturally. And both of them approach the temple to pray. The Pharisee gives this long-flowing, beautiful religious prayer. He says, thank you, God, for not making me like these corrupt tax collectors. Thank you for... Uh, Having me in this religious sphere where I can tithe all the time, where I can fast all the time, where I can do all the right religious things. Thank you for making me impressive. He's got an I problem. Always using the I pronoun. The text says he stands in front of everyone, so everyone sees how holy he is. And then we learn the tax collector's prayer. In the original Greek, it's just five words long. In our English, it translates, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The text says he beats his chest as he approaches the temple because he has remorse over what he's done. He knows he needs God's forgiveness. He's no, he knows he's not impressive. And Jesus tells us that it's the tax collector, the morally corrupt one who walks away justified because he recognizes his need for grace. He recognizes his need to repent. You guys, Christians should always be the first people to apologize. They should always be the first people to acknowledge they've messed up because we have a gospel that hinges on that. The entire gospel is about how I have not gained anything on my own. My excellence is not the thing that justifies me. The whole gospel hinges on what Jesus has done, and so I should be fully willing to acknowledge, yeah, I've messed up. Here's my laundry list. Do you want it chronologically, alphabetically? I have it for you right here. Yet so often, religious people are the first ones to self-justify. We're the first ones to say, well, I mean, we, we by and large do a pretty good job. If we are unwilling to repent, it is a clear sign that we have a stubborn heart. Friends. That's the second sign, the second symptom of a stubborn heart, exaltation. The third symptom of a stubborn heart is exemptions. That's saying that by and large, since I'm a good person, I don't really need Jesus. I'm good where I'm at. I like where I'm at. I can exempt myself from his claims over the world. It says, I see and hear about this Jesus person, but I kind of like my way of doing things. I kind of like my life right now. The stubborn heart insists on maintaining our own control and say over our lives, even if that's compartmentalized, even if it's like, well, I'll give Jesus these things, but these I get to protect. That's an easy trap for us religious people. That actually happens again in the scriptures. Jesus encounters a rich young man, a rich young ruler. And this young ruler approaches Jesus and says, I've done all of the Ten Commandments since my youth. I've followed them to a T. I've done exactly what I ought to have done. And Jesus says, that's great. That's awesome. There's just one other thing. Go and sell everything you have. And the rich young ruler walks away dejected. Now, Jesus didn't mean for every Christian to lack all monetary possessions, but he knew That in this man's heart, there was one thing that he was still holding on to, that he still wanted control over. He had compartmentalized his faith so that he was exempt from the claims of Jesus to be Lord over everything. We often do the same thing, friends. We hear Jesus tell us that true life is found in loving our neighbors, but we often ignore the ones we don't like. We hear Jesus say that giving ourselves away is the path to true peace, but we hoard a lot. There's a multi-million dollar self-storage industry in our country. We hoard a lot. We read about the centrality of forgiveness, but we harbor grudges against our enemies. Jesus tells us to forgive them, but oftentimes we don't listen. We think we're exempt from that part. He couldn't have really meant, like if he knew the enemies that I have now, he would have, like there'd be a qualifier on this. If he knew my neighbors, there'd be a qualifier. If he knew the importance of having a good savings account and a 401k, he'd he'd change things up for me. We make exemptions in the life of faith, and that's the sign, friends, of a stubborn heart. All of us, in one way or another, have participated in these things. Expectations, exaltations, and exemptions. Ultimate truth arrived in the world in Jesus' and we killed him. Ultimate truth arrived in the world, and he was skewered on a cross because we had stubborn hearts. We said, thanks, but no thanks. We don't need this kingdom. We've got a kingdom of our own. Things are running just fine. The stubborn-heartedness is all over the scriptures. It's all over us. It's all over history. And so the question is, what do we do? Jesus says we cultivate humble hearts. That's the solution here. We are people who receive Jesus in a new way. There's three characteristics of a humble heart that help us correct our stubborn hearts. The first characteristic of the humble heart is that it listens, listens. It's evident in verse 16. Jesus says uh, to his disciples, who he's sending out on a missionary journey to proclaim the kingdom, he tells them that when people listen to you, they listen to me. That is, these people are the messengers that are proclaiming, The kingdom. The church, ideally, should be the messenger of the kingdom. And the word that listen, the word listen there that Jesus uses, it implies not just an audible hearing, but a lived doing. This is implicit in what he's saying. He's not just saying, well, hear these things and maybe intellectually ascribe to certain ideas. He's saying, hear these things and then allow them to sink into every part of who you are, into your bones, into your muscles. Let it fuel everything that you do. This is actually, I think, oftentimes implicit in how we use the word listen. We just don't often put it together. I think about when you were a kid. Did your parents ever ask you to clean your room? Nobody. Cool. Just me. Yeah. I'm the only one that had a dirty room. Cool, cool. Um, no. Uh, many of us, I think, have experienced something like that. right? And then if we didn't do it, what would our parents say? You didn't listen. You didn't listen to me. We may have heard. We didn't listen. Listening implies hearing a message, and then allowing that message to shape us in one way or another. Jesus, when he came, is talking about the transformation of the heart, certainly, but that transformation leads to a transformation of every part of our lives. Jesus wants no part of an individualized, privatized faith that's disconnected from our lives. A humble heart listens to Jesus and then integrates what he said into everything that we do. And that's actually why these religious practices can be super helpful for us when they're means to an end. These practices, reading the scriptures and praying and being in community with one another, help us listen. They help us hear what God is doing and then allow God's work to shape our lives. The humble heart is the listening heart. And the humble heart is also a repenting heart. That's the second characteristic. Our willingness to acknowledge our wrongdoing is a sign that our hearts are becoming less and less stubborn, that our icy hearts are slowly being melted and warmed. And actually, as you grow in in your faith and following Jesus, what you find is that the gap starts to close between your wrongdoing and your repentance. Ideally, it's quick. Ideally, I recognize what I've done, and I quickly turn back to him. That doesn't mean that we become perfect people as Christians. I'm not a perfect person. Nobody here is a perfect But how quickly am I able to recognize what I've done and turn back to Jesus? That's the measure of Christian maturity. I have a a practice that I've started to incorporate to help me recognize this in my life that might be helpful. I call it the that's interesting practice. When I encounter something in my life, anger, judgmentalism, frustration, I stop and I say, that's interesting. Why did I feel that way? Why did I respond in that way to that person? Why was I angry? Why was I frustrated? Why was I annoyed? And when we do that, when we stop and say, that's interesting, and actually dig underneath our action, we'll often find things that we might need to repent for or things that we might need to shift in our lives, insecurities or pains. But we need to stop and slow down. That's part of the Christian life, reflecting on what God is doing in our lives. So I recommend that practice. I'm still learning how to do it well because it can be hard in the middle of your day. But stopping and saying, that's interesting. What's going on in me? That's the second characteristic of a humble heart. It repents. The third characteristic, a humble heart practices a preference for God. A humble heart practices a preference for God. I borrow this phrase from a spiritual teacher and bishop named Reuben Job. He was a Methodist teacher, and he wrote about this idea, practicing a preference for God in numerous books. Uh, It basically involves entering every situation looking for the ways that God is already at work and then seeking to align my heart and my actions with that work. Looking for the ways that God is already bringing love and grace to someone and then aligning my life and actions with those things. And it's often a reversal of our natural instincts. We tend, when we wake up in the day, to just be guided by our instincts. We tend to just jump into things. And then, if we take some time to reflect, it's at the end of the day saying, God, bless everything that I did. Bless everything that my instincts led me to. Reuben Job said, let's find a way to reverse those things. Let's think about what God is already up to so that my heart and my mind can be shaped to see what he's doing around me. One of the best guides I've seen for this uh, is actually a prayer from a monk who lived hundreds of years ago. His name was Francis. St. Francis. 13th century. It's an incredible prayer that helped him practice a preference for God. Helped him orient his heart and his mind. The prayer goes like this. Lord, Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we're pardoned. It's in dying that we're born to eternal life. Woo, good words. This is how we practice a preference for God. We notice the ways that the kingdom is not currently working or ways that it is, and we seek to participate in God's kingdom. with This is humble, friends, because it requires trust. It requires me to believe that God has in mind the best thing, And therefore, aligning my life with that best thing. That means I have to trust in this God. And when I trust that, I can start to practice a preference for it. You guys, every day, everyone in this room is becoming a certain type of person. Every day. Our actions, our thoughts, our decisions, they're forming us at the core of who we are. Every day, we're being given opportunities to reinforce a stubborn heart, or to crumble that heart with a humble heart. Every part of our life gives us an opportunity to be shaped one way or another. And Jesus makes it clear, the kingdom is here. He rode in on the donkey. We're going to see it proclaimed at the resurrection a week from today. The kingdom is here. And the kingdom can be received with humble hearts. But we have to participate in that. We have to receive it. We have to be willing to receive Jesus' life. The king has arrived. Transformation is here. May may we become a community that receives him with humble hearts. Let's pray.